Thank you, Hev. Well, good morning, everyone. How are you doing today? Oh my goodness, it is so, so good to see some of you in this building. If you're online watching us or you're a guest, we're with you, even though you're not here physically with us. Welcome. If, if you're visiting for the first time or you're just checking us out online, we hope that this doesn't last too long for you thinking you're a visitor and you start feeling like this is your home really, really quickly. And to the rest of you here or afar that consider Sunrise your church family, we are just so, so thrilled that you are spending a portion of your weekend again with us as we seek God together and look to elevate Christ and learn from him and enjoy this gift of actually being together. So again, that can happen remotely or in this building. We are just so, so glad that you are here. My name is Jed, and as always, it is a privilege and an honor to get to serve as one of our pastors on staff. If you have your Bibles or you want to open up a tab on your browser or peruse through your Bible app, you can go to Isaiah 44. We're going to be there this uh, morning for a little bit, but I'd encourage you, there isn't enough time to get to all the goodness of this chapter of Scripture, and so we would just invite you and encourage you and challenge you later on this week, spend some time in Isaiah 44 and seek the living God there and ask Him through His Holy Spirit to teach you and guide you and direct you because there's just no way we can cover all of that. And even though it forms the exegetical backdrop for this sermon, uh, we're just not going to be able to cover it. And then after you've spent some time there, go four chapters back to Isaiah 40, which also has some grounding for today. And again, sit with God there and learn from Him. I hope that you do that. This morning, we are continuing in week two of our series called Promised Land. That is a play on words. We know that it is correctly promised land, but we're calling it Promised Land for several reasons. And you can go back to week one in our archives to watch Britt explain that. And I just want to let you know, I was down for that the whole time. I loved the play on words there. And it's the narrative next step for us because prior to that, in the month of June, we were studying through the Israelites as they wandered and journeyed through the wilderness. And before then, at the final installment of our God is series. Lisa and I got to co-teach this message where we talked about how God is sending us into the wilderness. And so we find ourselves here today on this Sunday morning again at a 10,000 foot level looking at the nation of Israel as they seek to be in the promised land of Canaan and their journeys into that. And I was really excited when Britt said that this was one of his ideas for the month of July to go into this series, not just because it made sense chronologically, because it allowed me to go back in my handy dandy notes app and actually look at some outlines and some messages that I used last year with our young adults on their houseboats trip. And our theme for last year was called The Land. And the land was essentially what we're doing here. We are looking at the fact that it was never really about the promised land, but the whole time it was supposed to be about being in partnership and a covenant relationship with the living God. And that partnership, that covenant relationship, it begins, we see it in Genesis chapter 12 explicitly where God takes this unassuming man named Abram and he tells him to leave his homeland and go to this place that he has never been before, this place that his, his father had tried to go to. And so Abram sets off with his wife Sarai and Abram and Abraham and Sarah, whom they become, have this son named Isaac, who has this son named Jacob. 
And Jacob, his name is changed to Israel, which means he who struggles or wrestles with God. And, and Jacob has these 12 sons, and one of them is named Joseph, who sold off in the captivity into the nation of, of Egypt. And it's there in Egypt after a famine where the rest of his brothers come back and find him there. It's a surprise. And for the next 400 or so years, these children of Israel, these 12 sons, and then their kids and their kids, they propagate, or excuse me, populate this place. And so they become slaves there. And it's out of that where we see Moses take on this covenant, this promise of remembering that God was sending them elsewhere, that he didn't have this desire for them to remain in captivity. And so Moses leads them out of Egypt and they go 40 years in the wilderness wandering and wondering what God is doing there. Again, we studied that last month and at the edge of the promised land, Joshua leads them in. And for the next several hundred years in this land called Canaan, we see the nation of Israel struggle to stay faithful to God. They go through this period with, with judges before they have this king and they finally get this king and eventually over time there's civil warring, they split and there are two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah. And in the northern kingdom of Israel, they eventually fall to the Assyrians and about a hundred or so years later, the southern kingdom of Judah, they fall to the nation of Babylon. And it isn't until later on when the, the Persians cede control that they send the Israelites back into the promised land. And that's essentially just a quick synopsis of your Old Testament. That's what's happening here. And even though it's not listed for us chronologically, that's the story of the people of God. And in many ways, it just parallels our own lives, this cyclical inworking of our destruction, our self-destructive behaviors, and how even though God has set something so good in front of us, something for us to cherish and to live in and to revel in, and even though we have access to him alive and well, we choose over and over for counterfeits. We choose over and over for the things that are not truly God himself, and so we find ourselves messing up, sinning, and then asking for help and deliverance, and then getting comfortable again, and then doing it over and over and over. And this morning for this second week, we're going to be talking about a particular issue for them, and I'm gonna show you, and I hope that our cameras don't put me in a position that looks odd. So Jay, I hope that you're not the one that's showing up, oh, thank you. This morning, Pat, you having fun back there? Yeah. I'm not, I'm getting a head rush. This morning, we are talking about idolatry. We're talking about idolatry. And when we talk about idolatry, I think that there are a couple of things that we, we struggle with. Number one, when you look at me bowing down before this wooden piece of table, and I didn't practice this, and, and really I am getting somewhat of a head rush here, maybe it's because I'm nervous. We look at this picture and it, and it looks so absurd. And so we ask ourselves, how in the world could people ever create something out of wood or stone or iron or metal and, and then bow down prostrate to it. And so even though we can hear in Exodus 20 or Exodus 34 these prohibitions against idolatry, maybe one of the errors that we fall into is we think that's an ancient problem. That's not something that we struggle with today. That's not something that we need to be concerned about. And then we can look at Leviticus chapter 26 
where it says, you shall make for yourself no idols and erect no carved images or pillars and you shall not place figured stones in your land to worship at them for I am the Lord your God. And we see that and we go, okay, we get that. I would never do that in my right mind. And if I were crazy, perhaps I would, but I'm not crazy and so I wouldn't bow down to something. And so again, we, we see idolatry as an ancient issue, something that we don't struggle with. And that's one of the ways that we can take this incorrectly. But then on the other end, of the spectrum, one of the ways that perhaps we have erred when we talk about idolatry is we go, no, 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 that's, that's not just an ancient issue, and even though I don't resonate or understand these Near Eastern deities of Marduk or Baal or Asherah, I don't want to deal so much with the historical element of it. Let me just name the idols in my life right now, and, and I'll read those verses, those verses in Exodus or Leviticus or throughout the Old Testament, and I'll just hear God telling me, cast those idols down, throw down the statues, rid yourselves of them. And so we, we look to name those things in our lives that would be substituting our devotion, our attention, our affections to God, and we would say, we just need to, to stop it. We just need to get rid of it. Uh, but step outside of that mental imagery of, of idols for a moment, and, and let's talk about something that I really enjoy, which is watching old things in black and white, particularly sports highlights. Have you ever watched sports highlights in black and white? And for whatever reason, it could be the same game. It could be basketball or football or baseball games and sports that I love to play. But for whatever reason, when I go back and watch that grainy footage and I see them moving, it almost doesn't feel real. Do you know what I'm talking about? It almost looks like a different game, a different time. It doesn't seem as real to me. And yet, when we look at the world right now in front of us, it's three-dimensional in color, alive, active. We know that in this building, it's just human beings with beating hearts and with yearnings and desires and stuff inside of us that compels us to want to move and to act and to be. And so those very games that we watch, those highlights, they were just people like us. And to them, it didn't seem ancient. It didn't seem old. No, it was their present moment, which meant it was important. It was significant. They were bringing something to that court or that field that was beyond that. It was real. And when we talk about idolatry, it's important for us to look at the continuum, I think, of what it means to be human and to see that whether it was during times here or 40 years ago, or 2020, human beings continue to have deep, deep issues of sin, the things that separate us from God, longings and yearnings that would cause us to truly struggle with idolatry. So it's not just a historical thing that we decontextualize and then recontextualize, no, no, no. There's something beneath just idols and figures and statues. And this is why I love the prophet Isaiah and how he speaks about idolatry and certainly he speaks for reform and casting down and casting aside. But we see Isaiah begin to do something that separates him a little bit more from some of his contemporaries or from the former ways. And they would talk about Moses, by the way, as ancient people. So if the Israelites then can talk about Moses as ancient people, well, then they really do seem ancient to us. But these, these prophets, Isaiah and likewise, they begin to speak about idolatry that seems to indicate that it's not just as simple as saying, stop bowing down before those gods or stop carving those images or stop falling before them and throw them all aside. Look at how 
Isaiah writes in chapter 44 what we have here. It says in verse 18, they do not know nor do they comprehend, for their eyes are shut so that they cannot see, and their minds as well, so that they cannot understand. And what I love about this portion of Isaiah is he's sermonizing and proclaiming and prophesying for God is there are so many ways that we could look at it, and outside of its context, it might sound like Isaiah is talking about these statues, right? They don't know, they don't have minds, their eyes are shut, they can't see. But Isaiah is speaking about humans. He's speaking about the people who have invested all of this time and this energy crafting and creating and forming and shaping these idols. And he is saying, it's the human beings. It's not the idol, it's the idolater, it's the person. And it's not up on the screens, but the rest of it reads, no one considers nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, and I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. Now shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, the person creating the idols. A deluded mind has led him astray, and he cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a fraud? I don't know if you're catching what Isaiah is doing there, but he's basically, he's basically saying this. Are you going to take any amount of time to more critically reflect on what you are actually doing? And not just what you are doing, perhaps, why you are doing that. You see, we can point to problem after problem, idol after idol in our lives, but until we recognize that those, those problems, those behaviors, those things are actually the ways that in our minds, in our deluded minds, in our minds where we have not thought long enough or hard enough, in our minds where we have not had a change of thinking, repentance here that God's kindness has led us to, unless we get to this place where we experience stopping and being still with him, we will actually not address the issues that are at hand, the real problems. We can abdicate responsibility and blame it on a figure or on a statue, but unless we stop, as the NIV says, no one stops to think, unless we stop to think and consider and really attempt to deal with what is here and how that manifests elsewhere, we're not going to make much progress and we're going to look like every other human being before us. We're gonna look like the nation of Israel that sets up the idol and worships it and then gets rid of it and asks God for, for help and deliverance and then after comfort, they just do it again. So the title for this message is The Idols Say Something because even though Idols don't speak. I mean, I guess you could debate about Siri and Alexa. Uh, I don't want to say anything bad about the Google Assistant helper because she gets me places that I need to go and without navigation, I don't know, I would just be lost forever. Even though idols don't say anything or speak to us, I should say, they actually do communicate something about us as human beings. Does that make sense? So even though a statue, a piece of wood might not talk at me, the fact that I have propped something up, whatever it is, it says something about the state of my being, about my heart, about me as a person. So here are a few things, if you're following along on your note sheet, that I'll say about us as human beings. The first is this. We all yearn to make contact, i.e. connect with others, someone, or something. And if you read 
Isaiah 44, you'll see in verses 9 through 17, it is an incredibly meticulous process to create these idols. And throughout history, only the most skilled of people really undertook this thing of making idols. And and again, read that on your own, and it's just very short, and yet it shows that there's this time of going into the woods and and felling trees and then carefully crafting it or, or forging things through fire. There is a lot of physical contact there. There's something about touching and holding. And that really makes sense because we do live in a physical world. Yes, your feet are on ground. You're pressed up against a chair. We don't just float around this space without feeling it. There's a sense of connection that happens when there's physical contact made with things. And that's hardwired into us. We know that children as newborns and infants, there's detrimental development if they are not given nurturing physical care and touch early on. And we see studies and anecdotal evidence time after time again that if kids, children are in an environment where they're not given physical nurturing touch, those do lead to a whole host of issues later on down the road. And that's not to say that our brain cannot undergo types of rewiring to to fix those things, but it's a long, hard process. Physical touch is so, so important. And then so doesn't it make sense for human beings who have this deep intuitive sense that there's something or someone behind this physical world that we see that we would, for as long as humans have been around, attempt to physically see that or portray that or touch that or feel that. There's something about this thought that we have in our mind that maybe there's someone or something out there and what if I just tried, what if I just tried to create or fashion something that gave me a sense of comfort and security that that I'm not just crazy thinking that there's something or someone out there. Maybe there is and maybe it would indwell this thing and every time I touched this thing or looked at this thing or bowed down at this thing, it would remind me that I'm not alone in this world that I'm not the only one out here, that there's something bigger than me. There's something, I love art. I love how in art, it really is the world, but I love how in art, you have to picture something in your brain first, yes? I do this exercise with people sometimes where I ask them to draw a cat on a sticky, and then, you know, they take and they, they draw their cat, and, and after they've drawn the cat, we talk about how, thankfully, the cat doesn't look like a dinosaur, or, you know, it might not be the best-looking cat, but at least it looks somewhat like a cat. And the reason why we do that exercise when in any type of counseling, for instance, because it reminds people that we have to think of things before we create them, before we make something. And so with art or just our lives in general, what's happening in front of us, we take time to dwell upon and consider and then to make into. It's why Legos are so fun, right? Yeah, you can definitely use the picture, but how fun it is to just take thousands of Legos and sit there and wonder, what am I gonna build? What am I gonna make? And piece that together. And so it was confounding to the neighbors and to the foes of the people of Israel that they did not have a representation, a picture of God that they could see and look at 
for assurance that this God was actually there. Because for all the neighboring people or, or, or those that were around, they had something, multiple things that they could feel and touch and see, again, that would communicate safety. And so in Psalm 115, when the psalmist writes, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nation say, where is their God? The psalmist is speaking and asking a question that's asked all the time. Uh, David asked, you know, why do my enemies taunt me and say, where's your God? When shall I, shall I behold your face again? When shall I see the living God? There, there's something about the nation of Israel that makes them so different because they don't have a God that they can point to. The closest thing that they can remember is this time in their history, which again, for most of them was a long, long time ago, where they had this tabernacle, this, this tent that moved with them in the wilderness. But that's it. God mysteriously dwelled in this place and only certain people could go in and evoke or be a part of the presence of God. And for everyone else, they were just left to, to wonder and have faith and believe that God was actually there. And then verse nine of Psalm 115 says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. And don't you see in this worship song that they're singing, it's calling them to actually trust and to not just look and wonder why God isn't physically with them. It's communicating to their desire to have and see and to feel. And yet, there's something about idolatry, really, when you think about it, however, that puts us more in control, which leads me to the next two fill-in-the-blanks, and they go hand in hand. Number two in your fill-in-the-blanks is we aren't really comfortable with the living God. And then secondly, we long for a sense of control. You know, the best part about this table or a statue, or whatever it is, this, this image that is formed and created, is it can't talk back. It can't provide correction. It doesn't really need me to engage at a level, and I could pretend, I can certainly puppeteer, I could certainly act as though I were really beseeching it and wondering how it would save, but, but at the end of the day, we know that the process of idol making, I mean, who, who, who was making them? <laughs> well, the, the people, right? And in the ancient Near East, this process of creating was so thoughtful, but they weren't just good with creating something that looked beautiful. Historians tell us that they actually had rituals ceremonies that they would perform on the image or the idol after it had been created, a washing over of sorts that signified that the unseen deity in the spiritual realm would somehow then come into the statue and then, then this thing was alive. And they had so much confidence in the living being dwelling this statue that when 
Nations would conquer others. They would take these statues and they would deposit them into their own temples of their God to signify that this regional deity no longer had the ability to save or to help. It now was a spoil of war. It was now a slave. It was taken captive over by whoever, whomever, which God had helped their nation conquer the other. And again, we can look at that and go, well, that's pretty ridiculous. That's a wild thought. And yet, if human beings are the ones that are creating them and going off to war and then saying, this God told me to do that and I'm gonna go put you in the, doesn't it not again say that really the core issue for us is that we don't want to be told what to do. We want to be the ones that call the shots. We want to be the ones that say, God told me to, and yet I'm going to, I'm gonna move you, God, here, or I'm gonna move you, God, there. How easy is it for us to pretend that God is actually the one we're in dynamic relationship with, when in fact, he's not. So here's your last fill in the blank of that section. Really what I, I, I think it comes down to is that as human beings, we want something or someone to look like us. To, to, to think like us or to justify our thoughts. To call us to behavior that really might be abominable and yet is justified because God, moved me to it. God told me to. In the ancient Near East, these, these statues, they often took on human form. They weren't just like animals or odd-looking figures. Often they just looked like people because there was something that felt good about having a God that ultimately was fashioned and resembled another human being, but just was greater power an ability, and the final say. How troubling is it that you and I, today, without having to erect a statue or to craft something, we ourselves might be creating idols. And yeah, we could quickly say, well, well what about this, right? This is, this is a really easy form of idolatry. We could say, look at this thing. Look at the amount of time that we spend on, on these inanimate objects. We're really internally, we're, we're, we're curating or manufacturing an image of us for the rest of the world. So maybe there's this sense of us as gods. There's this, this thing that we do that seems to put us and, and ourselves at the center of it all. And that's a really easy thing for us to critique. And we should think thoughtfully about that. But there are other ways, right? What about the, the gods of our thinking, the idols of our thinking that think that deliverance and safety will come from a certain politician or line of partisanship or even a, a way of thinking theologically? How easy is it for us to actually make this look like us? And to say, well, we just worship 
God and, and do what he tells us to do because it's, it's in the word of God and, and so we're just gonna do what this says without really thinking that, that maybe, just maybe, what if we stopped to consider that our favorite Bible verses or our favorite ways of systematizing our theology are nitpicked. It's like we carefully selected this wood from the forest or this precious stone. We spent time studying and looking at intently and crafting a theology, a way of seeing the world that really at the end of the day actually looks, looks nothing like God, but looks a whole lot like our preference for the way the world should work so that we're comfortable and we're safe and we feel good and we're taken care of and our people are taken care of and everything in our neck of the woods is great. You can turn to Isaiah 40. Several chapters before. Look at how Isaiah writes. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a workman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver change as a gift. One chooses mulberry wood, this isn't up there, wood that will not rot, then seeks out a skilled artisan to set up an image that will not topple. At least that's what they think. Who can we liken God to? What would we create that actually demonstrates him? Here's a return, though. You know, the irony about our idol-making, our desire to have a God that looks like us, is when you go back to the very beginning, in the Genesis account, who are we made in the image of? What was that series that we spent some time in, God is, we looked at, we are made in the image of God. From the very beginning, there's a liveliness, an actuality to God, the living God. And throughout scripture, we see over and over, this living God is more than just distant or held in, this living God is living Word. And so here's the second half of your note sheet. The living word shows us. When I say the living word, it might be easy for you to think that I'm just talking about our Bibles, and we can call rightly so Scripture the word and the words of God. But the only reason why, please hear this, the reason why we do that is not because it tells us that it is that. It's because within it, it contains the truth that is revealed ultimately in Jesus Christ, the word become flesh. I do not have that idea that the word became flesh without John chapter one. I don't have the idea that God says I am who I am or I will be who I will be or the word of God lives forever. I don't have any of those ideas apart from scripture. So please do not hear that I'm coming up with theology apart from this. I've spent the last 12 years of my life almost daily I can't remember many days in the last decade where I did not spend time here. I don't say that to prop myself up. I'm just saying that I have an incredibly deep regard and respect for scripture, but the only reason why I do is because it testifies to the living word of God. Does that make sense? It testifies to Jesus the Christ. I do not worship this. 
I don't worship this because if I did, I'd struggle just as much as those who were with Jesus incarnate because he seemed to go against so much of what the word of God says. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But the living word first shows us that God's plan from the very beginning was always to dwell with us. That was his plan. To always dwell with us. Again, we see it in the garden when the account, he walks in the shade of the tree looking for them. And then we see it at the very end in Revelation 21 where it speaks this proclamation where, where the new Jerusalem comes, this, this heaven to earth. And it says that, that he, his home will be with the morals and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be among them. And the reason why it starts and it ends there is because it climaxes in the middle again with the word become flesh. And in John chapter one, where it says that the word became flesh and lived among us or dwelled among us, the word there in the Greek, the dwell, it's actually, it's in reference to that thing I talked about earlier very briefly, the tabernacle, this tent that moved. And so instead now of a tent that human beings move when God empties himself and comes into the world as Jesus Christ, the idea is God tabernacled among us, that he decided that he would go and physically be. And in Revelation 21, where it says that he will make his home among mortals, the word there again, it's tabernacled. And when he would dwell with them, it's tabernacled. And all of those things speak to the fact, this is your second one here, that Jesus is consistently surprising. God is so surprising. What's so great about this gospel, we call it so good and so great, is because it does not conform to what we expect it to be. It does not look like a holy God. We've taught this over and over from this stage and hopefully it penetrates more and more. This holy God that we perceive of that's far away doesn't stay there. Instead, he steps toward, he leans in, he comes to dwell amongst sinful people to remedy that sin isn't just rebellious or disobedient acts, but there's something inherently in us that he is looking to satisfy for all of our lives and for all of it. Which leads to our third point here, that God entrusts us to steward and co-labor. That as human beings, if God would physically enter into our world, there would be physical reason, real reason for us to continue partnering with him, which we said was what God from the very beginning was Abram and the nation of Israel was trying to do, be in covenant and partnership with them so that they would be a light to the world around them, so that they would look differently, so that there would actually be justice and goodness and rightness and a care for the poor and the needy and those on the fringes to look after the people that did not necessarily look like them or think like them, and God asks the same of us. And here's a verse I'd like to share with you that comes from Ephesians chapter 2, which I hope you read within the context someday of, of God taking something that's dead, even though we're physically moving, and animates and brings to life in Christ in a new way. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now I want you to see the play on words when it comes to idolatry here. 
Just as we perhaps want to fashion a God, a theology, a political persuasion or perspective, a worldview, a thing, a manner of doing that looks like us and is contained and just does what we say and moves the way we want it, that's not who God is, right? God is so much more consistently Jesus surprises us around him so that when we look at him, we'd see what we're naturally inclined to perhaps. God is wanting to, to topple that and throw that aside because we are his workmanship and he's forming and sanctifying and crafting us, but notice he's not crafting a robot. Notice he's not crafting something that's still and just gonna stand there and just praise him and worship him and do what he says and not move and stay rigid. No, we are his workmanship. And the Greek there is we are his poema. It's the word that someday becomes poetry. We are his what? His, his poetry? So that we would in Christ Jesus be created for, for more good creation to continue to think things with the mind of Christ that create a world with him that says your kingdom come, your will be done. That will say we're building something on our own. No, we're receiving your gift. We're receiving what you've done and we are going to in turn steward in a way that makes it so that you are king over and over which God prepared for us beforehand to live and to walk in them. So here's your final fill in the blank. And worship team, you can come on stage. You and I, we were created to be living words. Poema, to, to, to be poetry that speaks, to be human beings that, again, don't just stand and wait and harden, but have hearts of flesh where again, like ceremonially, ritually, there'd be a washing over us where we'd be created in a new where something dynamic would happen where instead of some spirit thing and dwelling a statue, the living spirit of God actually indwells us and takes residence in us so that with our lives and with our words and with our thoughts, we would actually be able to testify to a God who we sang of earlier doesn't look like this and doesn't shout like this and doesn't thunder from a mountain the way we assume, but instead, like Jesus on another mount says, you've heard it was said, but I say to you. Where we can be surprised knowing as he calls us to follow and to live and to be. We don't need to try and, and, and just fix our problems or save ourselves anymore. We can trust that if the gospel really is good news, when I say that my old life is now dead and I'm walking in the newness of his Life. Every single time I want to create theology or thinking or a world where I'm at the center of it, he reminds me again, I didn't create you to stay that way. I didn't redeem you to be stuck there. I've created you to walk in fulfilling and good in real life. See, idols say something about us, but God says something greater.
He says, I formed you. You are mine. Let's pray.